Evening, mate. Evening, pal. How are you? Yeah, good, thanks. Just us to start with, but I've invited you to co-host, which I think is an elevation of your normal status. I'm, I'm, look, I didn't want to say anything, but I was surprised it had taken this many weeks. <laughs> you always request to speak, and I've, uh, yeah, I should have, should have elevated you to that position. How's, uh, how's your week been? All good, thank you. All good. Just as I were chatting about before in prep, or not that much, but I will try and work out how I'm going to get home in half an hour to be able to watch um, the Liverpool game after this. So I'm going to, uh, yeah, see how it goes. But it's, um, yeah, it should be a really interesting game again. Not as interesting, I guess, without away goals. But we can talk about. We've probably talked about the away goals. Now, <laughs> happy, really. More than happy to do an away goals podcast again. Uh, more than happy. Although I, um, you know, I know as a Liverpool fans, as Liverpool fans, will always feel a sense of jeopardy. But our models had Liverpool. 64% to go through before the first leg. After the first leg, 97% to go through. So, Oh, don't say don't, that. So what you're, what you're saying is there's a chance. <laughs> I'm saying there's a, there's a 3% chance, which uh, yeah, was, was better than a, than a 36% chance a couple of weeks ago. Fantastic. Well, this week, Omar, as we discussed prior to, um, uh, to, to starting the, the, the conversation, um, is going to be more about you, in effect, because I... Um, inadvertently otherwise rather monopolized the agency um, conversation last week which i'm still feeling a tad um guilty about but but needless to say um you know it was great to see you um uh, and listen to your um ft business of football i think that's how it was um uh, marketed as um uh, and your your presentation um last week amongst um, some incredibly um, high profile speakers or rather they would say that they were speaking alongside an incredibly high profile <laughs> individual like yourself um, and I'm sure they noted um, in your CV that uh, the Dan and Omar show is a, is a principal reference point. But um, regardless of that point, the, the great thing that we now have the ability to do is, you know, um, pick your pick through your words of wisdom from the from the session, basically a great highlights reel and talk through um, the, the, the great points that you discussed. And, and just very briefly, by way of background to everyone listening in, um, I'm taking full credit for Omar's talk, especially because actually, Omar, you gave. Um, a section of it um, a good few years back at our first Sheridan's um, sports masterclass, which um, I remember very fondly only because it was in a rather sweaty room above some shop somewhere. I think it was one of our first Sheridan's events and you were kind enough to come in and speak to our clients all about um, uh, yeah, the 21st uh, uh, team's work, basically, and everything that you did. And you gave a fantastic um, sort of comparison presentation on two particular clubs. So maybe I'll let you take up the story from there. <laughs> yeah, yeah no, more than welcome to claim credit without without that there wouldn't be wouldn't be that uh this this talk so yeah the um fortunately got a little bit more time um today to go through it than than i had on, on thursday but essentially the presentation we we i presented on thursday was the three football clubs um you should be buying which um obviously is hopefully a catchy intriguing title um but in order to think about who you should be buying um our big thesis as a business at 21st group is that Performance is ultimately the only long-term driver of value for a football club because performance is the one thing that drives media rights income. And media rights income at the vast majority of clubs is the biggest, most important revenue stream. Um, and so often, and, and you'll have had this down when, when speaking to investors, there's a lot of talk around what a club can do around a stadium, what a club can do commercially, because in particular in European football, you know, the clubs are seen as underdeveloped commercially relative to US sports. You know, what you can do with ticketing, NFTs are now on the radar. Um, but actually, you know, if your team's not winning on the pitch, then it's irrelevant. You know, a, a team that's struggling is not going to be able to take advantage of any of those opportunities. Um, and so that, that's kind of obvious. But um, the thing in football is that the league table lies, performance lies, things change very quickly. Um, and so 
wanted to use an example um, of a club to illustrate that. And for me, the, the best example of a club that um, received investment when actually a proper understanding of what was going on at the club either might have deterred the investment or certainly made, um, led the investors to make a diff- different decision uh, was at Fulham in, in 2013. So if you go back to July 2013, Fulham were, uh, they just finished 12th in the Premier League, you know, comfortable mid-table club. They'd, finished, they'd been 12 consecutive seasons in the top flight. And even though, you know, some of those seasons might have been a little bit hairy in terms of relegation, you know, they were kind of seen as a firmly established Premier League club, um, unlikely to be relegated. And then you add to the fact that obviously they're a London club, they're on the Thames, you know, it's one of the nicest areas of London. It's, it's incredibly attractive club. Um, and it was with that backdrop that Shahid Khan bought the club, um, paid, reported, I think, £150, £200 million for the club at the time, um, you know, presumably with the expectation that this was, you know, a a very kind of um, interesting club or certainly kind of a, a club that could be profitable in the long run. Other bit of context as well, 2013, Premier League just had a massive hike in its um, domestic rights deal. Um, so, again, there was a lot of this consideration of do you r- ride the wave of the growth in, in media rights income over time? And so on the surface, Fulham seemed like a very, very attractive investment property. But if you actually look at the underlying performance of Fulham, there are, there are a huge amount of issues that, that needed to be addressed. So firstly, if you look at the underlying performance, which can be measured in a few different ways, whether it's expected goals or whether it's um, looking at um, our World Super League model, for example, and really trying to understand like, how, how good is this team really? Because you know that, particularly at that end of the table, a couple of results, a couple of lucky wins can catapult you from a relatively lowly position to a mid-table position. And so we have them as the 17th best team in the league. And when you're the 17th best team in the league, if you sustain that performance, you have a 50-50 chance of being relegated within two years because all you need is a few bad results to go against you. Um, if you're the 12th best team in the league, then your odds of relegation over the course of two years is, is closer to like one in five um, one in eight, that kind of that kind of range, and so obviously you'd much rather be, you know, the twelfth best team in the league than the seventeenth best team in the league. What's more, Fulham were potentially not even going to sustain that position of seventeenth best team in the league because over half their squad, according to our models, had their performance in decline, and they also had the oldest average age uh, of anyone in in English football. It's heading the Premier League at, at the time, so you know it was obvious that they needed. Well, it's you know it's obvious now, but but they certainly needed um, a bit of refreshment, and so. Shahid Khan going into the club in, in July 2013, you know, could and, and perhaps should have been looking at that in more depth and detail. And according to our analysis at the time, if Fulham had, had invested, given their efficiency at the time, given the kind of quality of the squad and so on, they needed to invest about 30 million worth of, of wages and, and transfer fees into the club. And that would have enabled them to acquire a better quality of players. You know, obviously, they need to offload some players as well. And if they'd spent that amount, they would probably, you know, balance probabilities would have reduced their chances of going down to that, you know, one in five, um, you know, one in eight um, probability or so. What Fulham actually did that summer is that they only invested about 10 million um, in transfer fees and wages. If you look at their their wage bill, it, it barely increased. And they spent about 10 million in um, in transfer fees that summer. Um, and then throughout the course of the season, they had a lot of so they, they found themselves in the relegation zone. I think they, st- I'm going to get this wrong now, but I think they started the season with, with Martin Yol, they then went to René Mühlenstein, and they had Felix Magath um, come in. In the in the January window, they realised things weren't going right, so they spent a lot of uh, money on Kostas Mitroglou from, from Greece. Um, and that all that wasn't enough. They, they just hadn't spent enough on the squad in the summer to refresh it, and they were relegated at the end of the, the 13-14 season. Um, and look, in most cases, you know, there's been a lot of debate um, around parachute payments. In most cases, maybe they would have been able to bounce back and um, and you know, reassert their Premier League status and, and sustain themselves in the Premier League again. Um, 
but they, they just haven't done that. And Shahid Khan's put in nearly 300 million in funding since uh, 2014, since they were relegated for the first time. They've spent just two seasons um, in the Premier League since. Obviously, they're very likely to come up again this year, but you know the 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 odds of any promoter team getting relegated is roughly four in ten, roughly you know 45 percent. Um, so you know the odds are still not great when they when they come up. Um, so I use that story a lot, um, not to beat Fulham up, um, although you know it could have been a very different picture. They um, they kind of looked at the squad in a different way, but I think it shows that you know I think the big picture stuff on Fulham was great. London club, mid table Premier League club, been in the Premier League for years. Media rights income is growing. No brain invest in Fulham, but there were so many risks around performance that there were huge downside risks um, to them to them getting relegated. That that kind of was the premise for identifying clubs that then might be undervalued um, based on the opposite of Fulham um, because they actually had traits that were good but perhaps didn't appear good to the naked eye. Well, if we just maybe just unpack that a tiny bit more and keep everyone in suspense for a few more minutes about the three clubs that um, you should be buying. And actually, there's an interesting one there, Omar, when I was just reading the title, because theoretically, if I remember correctly, without spoiling it for everyone, each of your clubs is in different jurisdictions as well. So theoretically, apart from the UEFA rules, they could actually form quite a, um, a wholesome um, trinity of, uh, of uh, pan-European clubs that would be um, quite a nice uh, multiple club ownership model uh, without wanting to, um, yeah, wanting to uh, suggest otherwise. But I was really just interested on, on that point, Omar, which is in your experience, and we've, you know, we've both worked with a lot of ownership groups in different ways. You know, how, in, in your mind, does that, um, uh, evolving process work which is you know how much are owners looking as much in the okay well it's a Premier League club and it's likely to stay in the Premier League and we're going to pay Premier League money and actually what we want is the location as much as anything else and do we think the manager is good enough to keep them in the um, the Premier League or the Championship for X amount of time and how much is actually about the assets i.e. the physical assets rather than the, the playing assets and the ability to renew a squad if in Fulham's case as was the case um, that renewal was going to have to happen a lot earlier and was going to obviously cost a significant amount more Yeah I think I mean most investors obviously don't necessarily start with football in mind. A lot of them might start with sport and entertainment in mind and then they go, okay, well, what's interesting? And then land on football because there's a couple of things that attract about football. Firstly, compared to US sports, valuations are much lower. Um, it's the, well, certainly up until COVID, it was the one kind of industry, again, compared to US sports where media rights uh, was, in, uh, was increasing rapidly. And then thirdly, it's one of those kind of, you know, legacy assets in, in a way, one of a better phrase where, um, you know, if, you, if you're investing in a football club over a kind of 20, 30 year time frame, it's something you want to kind of have in the family or whatever it is. And, and unfortunately, if, you know, for some people, that, that's the reality of, of how people look at investments. Then a football club's kind of a quote unquote nice thing to have. Um, so that gets you into football. And then it becomes a case of like, how tell do you want to go into each club? Because a lot of the time it's opportunism. A lot of the time it's, um, you know, uh, network or whatever it is that that <clears throat> presents a club opportunity, and uh, it's not always as as strategic as <clears throat> as you might think. Um, I think there's a great anecdote in in the club, um, the book by oh, I forget their names, but the Wall Street Journal. Um, it's around Abramovich when he first came into English football, and and almost the kind of um, coincidences that led him to buy Chelsea rather than any other club. And of course, Abramovich very unique owner for for many reasons, but other investors it's not it's not a totally unique situation the way that investment comes about um but i think increasingly owners are becoming more smart about the way that they think about investment like i've had long debates with investors and investment groups around a club's risk of relegation over a five ten year period uh, and one of the things i think um 
uh, I saw a great chart. It's, it's, it's relatively morbid, but I saw a great chart this week around um, the risk of um, nuclear war or, or kind of a nuclear attack um, in the world and how likely that is over a prolonged time frame, depending on your starting odds, your, your kind of baseline assumption. So even if um, you have a, I think it's something like a 1% chance of nuclear war in any given year, over something like a 100-year period, there's like a 50-50 chance of, uh, I forget the exact numbers, um, you can do the maths on it, there's 50 chance of of kind of um, a nuclear war. And, it, and it's obviously a, a morbid parallel, but in, in football, you've got a 10% chance of relegation in any one year. That feels like a low risk, but that accumulates over a course of time because it's essentially a conditional probability of staying up each year, 90% times 90% times 90% and so on. And actually that accumulates a quite high risk of relegation in the long term. So the sensitivity to that 10% versus 5% versus 20% is quite large as to your risk of relegation. And, th- and these are some of the things that um, investors begin to think about now. And leading on to that point then, I guess, I mean, I, I, the, when I was thinking about your, your analogy there, is there something in the fact that obviously... Um, uh, well, I'll just put it this way: the probability, the probability of the positive event happening becoming more significant, leads to the the lesser extent of the event happening, i.e., nuclear war rather than relegation. So, in a way, the 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 terrible upside leads to a much even less likelihood of the probability happening. Is that is that correct? Would that be fair to say? Even though I'm not work, trying to work out probabilities or otherwise, so that you know, um, I completely get the nuclear point. But almost in a way, the more randomness of relegation feels like something more out of control of that particular player or authority yeah. at the time. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, yeah, it's 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 basically trying to get a grip on on the probabilities and and the fact that you can't necessarily control everything. And if you do have a ten percent chance of going down, that's kind of going well. That ten percent. You could go down, and it could be due to bad luck, could be due to injuries, could be due to your star player not performing, could be due to your manager kind of losing the dressing room, all these kind of things. Or similarly, your chance of staying up could be because you've got a great run or whatever it is. You just don't know, and and every season you don't know that, and and therefore you need to kind of consider those probabilities of of the range of things that might happen. Um, and of course, the more the more insight you have on the team, and the more confidence you have on the people within the club and all that kind of stuff, then. Um, then you kind of gain confidence in, in the probability and you, you may even reduce move up or down probability accordingly. But that's that's kind of the way to think about it. No, really helpful. So without keeping everyone in further suspense, um, let's go on and uh, give some insights into um, these three clubs because the truth is, which is great, because I've had a bit of a sneak preview, I'm not going to give anything away, is, you know, obviously the whole point is it's to do with the underlying measures that you are using which are sometimes more of the invisible measures um but i found the results fascinating so looking forward to hearing all the details in more detail yeah so the three clubs uh, you should be buying um so club number one is perugia in um in serie b so perugia have been a very big very big club in the past um, but they're actually in the third division last year they're now in the second division i think they're in the uh, potential playoff spots um, at the moment, um, but you know, being in the playoffs is certainly a guarantee of going up, and, and certainly long long term, the expectation would be Serie B. Uh, but they have a lot of things going for them. Um, firstly, we already rate them as better than some Serie A clubs. I.e., if they were to play some Serie A clubs tomorrow, they'd be favourites. Which, in the event that they do go up, obviously bodes quite well for their ability to stay up um, in the division. Um, and the fact they have a very small budget, um, and so we rate them as third for operational efficiency, which essentially is the extent to which you're maximising your wage bill, your spending um, for performance. And they're third of that in, in Serie B. Um, and if they do get promoted, and again, this, this kind of goes back to the media rights talk. Like ultimately, a club, as an investor, you need to be maximising media rights. 
And Perugia had the opportunity if they get promoted, because if they get promoted, their revenues treble overnight. Um, so the big question is, how do you do that? Um, and our our analysis of Perugia says that if you invested nine million uh, annually into the into the club, which is quite a bit actually at Serie B level, um, that would give you a fifty fifty chance promotion within two years. Um, but this is where you know we, we tend to work with investors, which is around how do you do smart investments? How do you find undervalued talent in the marketplace? How do you maximize the value of your academy? How do you even do things at a performance level, whether it's around maximizing home advantage, game states, set pieces, all that kind of stuff? How do you do things even more efficiently and gain a competitive edge? And if they do do that, then only two million a year is needed um, in order to gain 50-50 odds of, of promotion. So they are in many ways an undervalued club, um, You know, only need a small injection of, of money in order to, to potentially treble their revenues overnight. Um, and I, on each of the clubs, I, I put it in the context of, um, you know, a comparable club. Um, and so for Brugia, their comparable club would be Palmer, who are actually a much bigger club in some respects. Also in Serie B, uh, mid-table with a much, much bigger budget. Um, and our analysis suggested that whereas Brugia needed about 9 million annual investment at the current level of efficiency in order to have a good chance of promotion. Palmer, at the current level of efficiency of spending, we need to spend 24 million um, each year in the next two years to have a 50-50 chance promotion because they just haven't spent that money well in the last couple of years. Um, and so if you assume that there are inefficiencies in the way that the club's operated, they, they would need to spend a significant amount. So, you know, Palmer, much bigger club, much more attractive, have received US investment relatively recently, um, you know, not as attractive as, as a Perugia, um, as a club. Uh, and then club number two um, is FC Twente in, in the Netherlands, which... Um, of course, relatively recently was was in the second division in the Netherlands and historically been caught up in um, in different different scandals. But they they are very much a, a kind of um, renewed force now. Uh, there's a couple of things that are going for Twente. So the first thing is that they have the 18th most productive academy outside the big five European leagues, which is impressive because they're certainly not the 18th biggest club outside um, the big five European leagues. Um, they're, they have a very good women's team. So Ajax are the best women's team in the Netherlands, but Twente are comfortably the second best women's team in the Netherlands, which, again, is interesting because long term, you've got to think that, again, there's the growth of the women's game, but also the growth of the women's game at a European level um, where Champions League will expand, who knows, so there's Europa League or whatever it is in, in women's football and Twente would be very well positioned to take advantage of that. Um, but back on the men, um, the Dutch have a very good coefficient, seventh in the UEFA coefficient at the moment, which would give them... I think I'm right in saying two Champions League group stage spots. Um, they could even move to sixth, um, such as the kind of quality of performance in recent years of, of Dutch clubs, obviously in particular Ajax. Um, and obviously Champions League would be a massive boon for a club like Twente. They'd double their revenues um, overnight by qualifying for the group stages. There's a big gap to Ajax, so they would need to invest a, a fair bit of money, 17 million based on their current efficiency. But again, smart thinking around investment would mean they only need 10 million um, in order to qualify or in order to give themselves a 40% chance of, of Champions League within the next five years. And as we've seen with a lot of clubs, you know, the moment you qualify for the Champions League, you set in motion a flywheel effect where you get that revenue, you're able to reinvest it in a team, you perform even better and so on. So that's the kind of hope for a club at FSA 20. Uh, and I know investors have been looking at similar kind of mid-sized European markets. And um, so the Netherlands is one, Switzerland would be another. But if you look at a club like Luzerne, Switzerland have an overvalued coefficient. So they're unlikely to gain group stage spots. Um, and that means that obviously, you know, the, the opportunity for Luzerne to qualify for the Champions League is, is much much more diminished uh, and also a club like Luzerne um, you know spending their money much more inefficiently than um, than 20 at the moment and therefore we need significantly more investment in order to to reach um, the Champions League 
Uh, and then the final club um, is FC Cordoba, um, who have spent one year out of the last 50 in La Liga in the top division. Um, and they're currently in the fourth division in Spain. So it might seem like an odd choice. Um, but Cordoba have actually been really unlucky. They, they're a very good team. Um, there was a restructuring of Spanish football recently that meant they dropped into the fourth tier. But our models incredibly have them as the 30th best team in the country. So they're effectively a second division level team competing in the fourth division. Um, they're, they're actually very likely to get promoted this year to the third division. They've got a great core of under 23 players. Um, a number of a big portion of their minutes is, is under 23 minutes. They've got a women's team in the second division in Spain and, and our models have the Spanish league as the most improved league uh, within European football in the last five years. Uh, and such is Cordoba's quality that our model suggests they would only need two million a year injection of capital over five years to be 50-50 for La Liga uh, over five years. That's that's kind of how well they've been performing. Uh, and you compare that to a club like Real Zaragoza, who much bigger club in second division, but we would actually have as underdogs against um, Cordoba. They're the 45th best team in Spain and would need substantially more investment in order to um, in order to have a 50-50 shot at, at La Liga. Um, so... But they're, they're hopefully interesting clubs in the sense that they're not the clubs you would necessarily think of, but they, you know, different investment um, investors think about different things, right? And, and some are looking for trophy assets, some are looking for you know, big turnaround stories. Uh, the, way I, the way I would think about these three clubs is that they're probably undervalued. Um, they're in good or interesting markets and there's the opportunity to essentially catapult the club to a new level of, of revenue generation, which obviously creates greatest value for the club so yeah Perugia, Twente and Cordoba three very interesting clubs and if you've got a bit of spare money knocking about then then I would encourage you to certainly explore the opportunity of investing in them. No thanks for that Omar I think it's um look I, I think the great thing um that I'm always really intrigued especially to listen to you guys the 21st group on on all of this is you know thinking outside um thinking outside the box and you know, it's all very, it's all fair and well to, you know, be looking, I guess, in the last week or so and seeing, you know, Chelsea's for sale, um, other clubs um, uh, rumoured to be um, on the market or otherwise. And you're always talking about huge amounts of money that cover, I guess, in a way, the the guarantee of huge amounts of revenue coming in through Champions League monies, through Premier League participation, through a great transfer system, which means you've got, you know, big player assets, um, um, on on the books, and I think it comes down to exactly as you said, um, things in relation to valuation in a way. And I was really fascinated by. I think it was. I think you were talking about Cordoba right at the end about their their squad being very self reliant and uh, reliant on a, a huge number of under twenty three players. Is always the concern, I guess, for an overperforming team. Like for example, I think you mentioned like Ajax a few years back. Um, that all of those players in an overperforming team before they have the chance to actually excel um, and over continually overperform actually then get sold as a result. And at that point, how do you then go about thinking about revaluing or working out actually if the underlying structure is still so solid that actually they're still that team is still on an upward trajectory and upward curve? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, so th- there's different ways of looking at it. I think with any club in all these three clubs, you want to look long term the extent to which. Um, they've had operational efficiency without the current manager, without the current squad, like to what extent have things been sustained over a period of time. And that's where a club like Southampton, you know, tends to stand out. Um, you know, Brighton tends to stand out. Liverpool have tend to stand out because even if Brentford, obviously, even, if, even as they've lost players and <clears throat> changed managers, it tends to perform pretty well. And that, as an investor, can give you confidence that this is something a bit more systemic rather than just the players of the club. And, and it gives you confidence that if the club were to lose players, sell players, then they'd be able to, to replace them capably. So 
yeah, that, that it all all part of that due diligence process, gaining confidence in in the management team at the club, um, because as we know in, in football, like uh, and football clubs, often the infrastructure isn't there, the kind of in, the ingrained institutional knowledge isn't always there at a club, and so I think uh, as an investment team, in some cases, an opportunity because you can go and build it, but in other cases where you're just looking to kind of ride the wave of these clubs, you know, off the, their recent good performance, then you need to have good underlying fundamentals. That's fantastic. So, well, you've heard it from um, the horse's mouth, Perugia, Twente and Cordoba. So um, if we see any movement in the next few months, we know who to be looking for for our commission monies. Is that what basically you're saying, Omar? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. We'll hopefully hopefully get a few uh, a few interested parties in those, in those clubs. And, and yeah, they're, they're certainly undervalued, so they're certainly worth looking at. Mate, um, really enjoyed the chat. Thanks so much for sharing thoughts and wisdom and insights. It's um, a great one and um, looking forward to talking again next week. Thanks everyone for listening. Cheers, Dan. Take care. Thanks for listening. You can follow me on Twitter, TikTok and Instagram at Football Law. Read my blogs and listen to my previous podcasts via my website, danielg.com forward slash blogs. Please do subscribe to the Dundeal Football Podcast like, share and tag me. If you like the content, if not my voice, you'll probably also like my book Done Deal, an insider's guide to football contracts, multi-million pound transfers and Premier League big business. A bit of a mouthful. It's available to buy in hard copy, digitally and via Audible. All links are in the podcast show notes. Lastly, the podcast is powered by 13, which is a fashion brand I've started. All proceeds go towards cancer charity research and particularly the stellar work done by John Krell, who has helped my mum through some difficult times over the last few years. You can take a look at the merch and hopefully buy a t-shirt, hoodie, cap or all three. Please do spread the word and go to 13shop.co.uk. That's 13shop.co.uk. Thanks for listening.